Ms. Hanson, you've reserved seven minutes for rebuttal. Yes. You may proceed. Good morning. May it please the court. Cassie Hansen appearing on behalf of the director of the Office of Lawyers' Professional Responsibility. A multi-year suspension is warranted when a disbarred attorney willfully violates his ethical obligations and the conditions of this court's reinstatement order. Respondent does not dispute the referee's factual findings relative to his trust account misconduct. Before I briefly summarize those, I want to remind the court that those factual findings must be considered against the backdrop that respondent testified twice in two separate reinstatement proceedings that he understood his ethical obligations regarding maintaining his trust account. Counsel, let's, let's assume that he did not have a disciplinary record, that he had not been disbarred for conduct relating to money. Um, what would what would be the recommendation recommendation of the office for discipline in this case? It would be somewhere between a public reprimand and a short period of suspension, depending upon the amount of the commingling and the amount of the shortages due to the negligent misappropriation and the duration of those factors. This court's already established that these are not uh, minor accounting errors. Failing to maintain required trust in books and records is serious misconduct that can warrant a public reprimand when it's accompanied by commingling and negligent misappropriation that further aggravates the seriousness of, this, of that misconduct. So a lawyer, without the aggravating or mitigating circumstances here, would already be facing some sort of lower-level public discipline. The director's audit in this matter was lengthy. It, Counsel, can I just mm -hmm. ask, so... Why was Mr. Lieber discharged from probation in July of 2016? When he, the management of the, the mismanagement of the trust account began six months earlier, seven months earlier? We never knew about it. That's, the, that's simply the answer. The, the prior, well, what was happening while he was on probation? What sort of There was no provision for our office to be engaged in trust account monitoring based on the conditions that the court's reinstatement order had, had imposed upon Mr. Lieber. What kind of probation was it? He was subject, uh, the court put in place numerous monitoring provisions uh, safeguarding him from engaging as a solo practitioner. It also imposed a separate condition that he had to ensure that any law firm uh, that, with which he was associated, had to maintain compliant trust account books and records. I believe he couldn't be an independent signatory on a trust account, but there was no requirement for any law firm employing Mr. Lieber to submit their trust account books and records to our office. There was also no specific provision saying that he could not have access to a trust account. Mr. Lieber testified that while he was employed by Metro Law as a paralegal during the period of suspension, he was primarily responsible for that law firm's bookkeeping and that those obligations continued uh, when he was reinstated to the practice of law on July 31st, 2013. So simply put, we didn't know. And I, also- Can I just follow up? I, I'm just looking at the order from 2013. It says, such books and records shall be made available to the director within 30 days after notification of a change in status and shall be made available to the director at such intervals as he deems necessary to determine compliance. We didn't, we, we obviously didn't know that he was um, the extent of, of his, uh, we didn't know, so we didn't ask. Normally, um, when we are required under the terms of a probation to audit, 
a, a, a firm's trust account records, that's how we determine the errors. Mr. Lieber didn't purchase his law firm until after his uh, uh, probation expired. In fact, he purchased his law firm about a month after his, proba his probation expired. So the director's audit in this matter was complicated. It was 18 months long. It was clear from the onset of the audit period that Mr. Lieber was making numerous bookkeeping errors in his trust account. The, the referee found that Mr. Lieber did not know how to operate uh, QuickBooks and that he wasn't properly submitting or doing client subsidiary ledgers. He wasn't doing monthly reconciliations. We didn't actually get compliant books and records of that variation until over a year into the director's audit. And to be clear, following up on Justice Thiessen's question, he, the order for reinstatement specifically said he needed to maintain these subsidiary ledgers and other accounts. Yes, and Mr. Lieber clearly testified that he was not maintaining compliant books and records, and he knew that because when a lawyer has to mo do monthly reconciliations of their trust account, that number has to match the um, bank statement. Mr. Lieber clearly testified that that wasn't the case, and he just assumed because he had a high-volume personal injury practice and there's a bunch of client money going through that trust account that there was always going to be enough to, to pay whatever bills were going through the account. But the point is, his account was a mess, and it took the intervention of the director competent respondents counsel, and then finally after a year, almost a year, Mr. Lieber hired an accountant to assist him. So this was not, a, this was not an easy audit. Our audit was 5,000 pages long. Mr. Lieber also testified that he was engaging in bookkeeping practices that had persisted since prior to, who disbar to his disbarment, which also impacted his ability to maintain compliant books and records. Uh, in particular, Mr. Lieber had a practice of taking uh, clients with the same last name, but who had unrelated personal injury claims and putting them on the same subsidiary ledger. And that further uh, complicated the audit. So, and there were um, you know, erroneous entries in the check register, disbursements, deposits, missing disbursements, deposits. This was, this was a process to get Mr. Lieber's books and records back into shape. And that's a process that occurred through direct intervention and a lot of work by our office with Mr. Lieber, his counsel, and as an accountant. And that's important for the court to understand because the, re the referee in this matter concluded that that conduct was willful. And respondent doesn't contest that finding. So when the court is looking at what discipline to impose in this matter. And again, this is a case of first impression. We've never, this court has never had the opportunity to address what level of discipline is imposed on a disbarred attorney when they commit additional misconduct. But first and foremost in the court's mind has to be the concept of deterrence, to deter respondent from engaging in further misconduct. And the reason why I referred back to the prior reinstatement hearing is because uh, monitoring terms such as those enumerated in the Supreme Where in our jurisprudence, our discipline jurisprudence, do we talk about deterrence as a, I mean, where, where is that? I thought the goal was public, protecting the public. Well, it is part of protecting the public, and the court in the Westby case talks about deterrence as a part of protecting the public. Because when a lawyer has demonstrated recurrent misconduct, that evidence is a willfulness. And so deterrence is something that plays into the need to protect the public, and the court has acknowledged that in Westby. And Why isn't an 18-month suspension with, say, a condition that he always has to have a bookkeeper keeping track of his books and records? Why isn't that sufficient to protect the public? 
Respondent has proven through his willfulness and his recurrent conduct that he's not amicable to probation monitoring terms. This is an attorney reinstated from disbarment who testified during the referee trial that he knew he was violating the court's prior reinstatement order, and he chose convenience and persisted in the same bad bookkeeping practices instead of just hiring an accountant in the first the counsel, place. Counsel, normally I would probably agree with you, but I'm, when I'm talking, looking at convenience, I mean, this, there was a lot going on in his life in regards to his his daughter and I know it was his father-in-law. I mean, foc I focus specifically on the daughter. And what what role should that or do you think that has in what discipline is imposed and how we look at this? Because he had some really major life issues going on. I think he was at the hospital half a day, then working at the <coughs> hospital, and then going home and working at night. And I mean, obviously that has some role. What What role do you think it should play in this case? And the director acknowledges that the circumstances of that are, are sad, but the referee engaged in the correct analysis when weighing, when giving, when determining what weight to give that particular mitigating factor in the context of the presence of other substantial aggravating factors, including his unprecedented disciplinary history, the recurrency of the misconduct, the proximity of the misconduct to his reinstatement, and the referee ultimately uh, made a finding in its 88A through C that the willfulness of that misconduct interplays with the need for deterrence. So I think the referee got it right. And the court has acknowledged there have been other cases where lawyers have presented mitigating circumstances involving family stress. There's the main case. And the court in that case handled the analysis on that mitigation by saying that while it is a factor, it is mitigation, it doesn't outweigh the need to protect the public and the need for substantial discipline. And that's the... That's but, but going back to what the chief was asking, so given the family stress and dynamics that were going on here, um, why is what the chief um, suggested, which is the 18 month plus the monitoring or that he has to have an accountant not sufficient? Well, a lawyer, it's twofold. First, a lawyer has a responsibility to supervise any bookkeeper in the in the uh, preparation of bookkeeping, and the lawyer has the obligation to understand his ethical obligations. So just simply pushing it off on a bookkeeper won't solve that problem because the referee specifically found that respondent doesn't understand his record-keeping obligations. And so that safeguard there isn't in, it, isn't in and of itself something that would be sufficient. And twofold, the referee found that the misconduct, the record-keeping misconduct was willful. Respondent has already demonstrated a willingness to disregard uh, terms of a reinstatement order setting forth monitoring provisions. That's not enough to safeguard the public in the opinion of the director. Uh, Council, uh, I'm looking at page 16 of um, uh, brief for the lawyer here, and the brief says, it's clear, however, that no client complained about the trust account misconduct and no client actually lost any funds. Does the director agree with those statements? Yes. Does does that in any way affect what the uh, discipline here should be? No, because the harm is twofold. There's the separate harm to the client, which the director concedes did not happen, but there's also the harm to the profession and the public, which as court has said in the Teague case, result when a lawyer negligently misappropriates client funds because of the breach of the fiduciary obligation. I'd also note again that it was with the with a, with a large amount of intervention from the director's office that the risk of client harm was negated. This is, respondent wouldn't have been able to 
fix his trust account books and records but for 18 months of meeting with the director. I mean, we had three separate audit periods. Even after the respondent um, hired an accountant, we still had to meet with respondent's counsel and the accountant in person in order to correct issues that were persistent. Also during the course of the Count, audit. Counsel, if I, if I may, um, Mr. Lieber makes the point in his brief that uh, this particular uh, uh, negligent misappropriation was, was just that, was negligent, and that he was oblivious to it. But now you've said to us a couple of times that this was intentional. The brief, uh, your opponent's brief seems to suggest that the director um, had made a point at trial of saying this did not involve intentional misappropriation. So help me clarify the facts, because I think their point is that that this did not look like and was not of the same ilk, if you will, of the, the, the misappropriation that got him disbarred, which was intentional and deceitful and, and all of those things, and that this is a different animal. Um, still misappropriation, but negligent and uh, something that he was, was unaware of. So help uh, sort that out for me. You're confusing my term, my use of the word willful as it relates to the referee's finding to his trust account bookkeeping failures with the misappropriation. We have never, we've always said that the misappropriation is negligent in this matter, which by definition means that you are unaware of it. Can I just clarify, so I, looking at the referee's findings here, did the referee determine that mitigation is not to be considered? It seems like they're their conclusion was mitigation, uh, not mitigation, but the stress that uh, Mr. Lieber was under was not to be considered bec because of these other factors, as opposed to what you seem to be arguing, which is that you have to, that you should consider it, but balance against his willfulness and these other things. So what, what is the director's position on that? Should it, is it something that should have been considered by the referee, uh, but balanced against other things? Or is it that, you what I think the referee is saying is that you shouldn't, you shouldn't consider it at all? Well, I think what the referee says in finding of fact number 98 is that, yes, it is mitigation, but it's insufficient. The weight that he's giving it is insufficient to mitigate against the need for a substantial period of suspension because the trust account bookkeeping is willful. What does, it, what does it mean to be insufficient to mitigate against? To me, that's saying that they're not mitigating. It's saying that the need to protect the public outweighs the need for leniency. And that's consistent with what the court has done in other cases where lawyers have presented mitigating factors, family stress, um, So family uh, stress is a mitigating factor. Yes. And you're acknowledging that yes. should, we should consider yes. that when we're setting discipline. I don't read the referee's finding number and, 98 as saying and, that it's not. I'm saying that. And more that, importantly, your position is that we should consider the stress and mitigation in, in setting the discipline. Yes, but it doesn't mitigate against the need to protect the public, part of which is deterring See, that's responding. what I'm getting confused about. When you say then, you're using the your word mitigate, I think, maybe okay. in two different ways. You're saying there is mitigation, okay. but it doesn't mitigate against. Are the, you weight saying, is, the weight is insufficient. It's an in, creates an insufficient basis for the court to conclude that a disposition less than a multi-year suspension would be warranted. I have a question about um, the mitigating factor that we sometimes recognize in intentional um, misappropriation cases, and that's the lack of a selfish mo motive. Mm -hmm. And I'm, uh, I, I mean, I understand the differences in intent between, you know, a negligent misappropriation and an intentional, but 
it does seem odd to me that we credit a person who's intentionally misappropriating um, if they don't do it to buy a boat or a, a diamond necklace or something, and then we don't give any credit for somebody who's just done it accidentally, you know, even though they're not using it to enrich themselves. So I don't know why that wouldn't be a legitimate um, mitigating factor here. It's not a separate mitigating factor. It's part of the court's analysis in determining the nature of the misconduct, which the court then considers as one of the four factors in determining the disposition. Sure. And, and I forgot to add that to my question because I know we do take that into account in determining seriousness of the conduct. But we always say that these negligent misappropriation cases are very serious. So. Um, I just think if we use it in intentional misappropriation cases and we con we consider negligent misappropriation cases to be serious, I don't know why we wouldn't use the lack of a selfish motive in these cases as well. Well, again, it would be double-counting mitigation because the court already takes the less serious nature of negligent misappropriation as opposed to intentional when saying that the general range of discipline is a public reprimand and a, and a suspension versus intentional misappropriation, which is presumptively disbarment, absent mitigating factors. Also, there is some evidence of a selfish motive here. Respondent was on uh, probation. He was subject to a... Supreme Court reinstatement order that required him to ensure his law firm was maintaining compliant books and records, and he didn't do that. Obviously, had that come to our attention, it might have it might have been a means but for us to revoke. Didn't, didn't you take that into account with recognizing prior discipline as an aggregating factor? I'm not quite sure that I understand that. Well, it sounds like your argument is we shouldn't talk, think about selfish motive because he was under probation, but you're already factoring that in on the aggravating side. Well, I'm saying by not, uh, by not, there is a motive for, because the lawyer on probation, his probation can be revoked if it's not compliant with the terms of the probation. So obviously had it come to our attention with the books and records that he hadn't been maintaining them, he could have been subject to possible uh, revocation. But again, the stronger argument is here that a lack of a selfish motive is by definition what negligent misappropriation is. And that's part of the nature and the seriousness of the misconduct. And that's reflected in the disposition being a lesser sanction than that, that, than that imposed an intentional misappropriation. I would like to talk for a moment about uh, the issue of lack of remorse. And I have some concerns about the referee's findings here. Um, uh, and I'm just wondering if maybe appellant, or excuse me, the lawyer isn't correct that, it, that lack of remorse winds up being neither mitigating nor aggravating. Specifically, um, Counsel for uh, the lawyer here argues that the transcript regarding the QuickBooks issue um, reveals that he didn't blame uh, QuickBooks. Uh, he acknowledges that the software did not work properly, testified that he did not know how to use it properly, and, ad and admitted his responsibility for the practice of labeling the ledgers properly. Um, is uh, finding 88E adequately supported by the evidence in the record? Well, I would note that the, ref or that the respondent doesn't contest findings 88A through C, which would be a sufficient basis for the court to find that he lacked remorse. Uh, the record, part say, of the counsel, say that again. What what we, is respondent? Respondent does not contest. So the finding, the referee's finding of remorse is comprised of A through E. 
Respondent does not contest the referee's findings A through C, oh. and those are a sufficient basis to find remorse. As for blaming PASO for the bookkeeping records, the referee made a credibility determination, and you have to uh, give me a, a little leeway here with the, to explain some facts. The director requested books and records from Mr. Lieber for the period prior to December uh, 2015, all the way back to his reinstatement. Mr. Lieber didn't provide those records because he said there was a, a sewage backup that destroyed them, and then his computer broke down, and he, uh, and he admittedly, and the referee found his misconduct, that he wasn't maintaining the required electronic backup of those records. So the director couldn't um, ask, or our audit couldn't determine whether his allegations that Mr. Paso was making these types of errors was... Um, was credible, and the referee did make a credibility determination that ties in with his finding that um, that he did blame Paso, that that there was no evidence for that. But it's um, you know there there is testimony, and we did cite it in our brief where I mean, what is making excuses or pointing the finger at somebody else? I, I mean, they're kind of. I don't think the referee was wrong in that conclusion. When you're asking somebody who's responsible for the accounting errors. And he's saying, well, Mr. Paso was making these errors. He didn't provide the books and records by which we can verify that statement. He was required to maintain an electronic backup. And we know yeah, but, he was making but the, the problem same. With that, the problem with that is, I mean, all of that goes to competence and compliance mm -hmm. issues. And I'm not disagreeing with you that those are problems. But that doesn't have anything to do with the remorse question. I mean, that's, um, I, I mean, I think there's a lot being shoveled in here mm -hmm. under the remorse issue that, really goes to other problems that this lawyer may have had. Um, you, you know, the uh, comment is made here uh, in um, uh, the lawyer's brief about you know, the potential inconsistency between the findings of the referee in 88, that uh, he violated the rules, but that he got caught, that specific finding that the referee made, but then the testimony that, or the additional finding that the referee makes that he was oblivious to the notion there were shortages in his trust account. I, I think there's a pretty good argument there that some of the referee's findings on this remorse question, um, you know, the remorse may not be what we would like, but uh, it doesn't seem to me to be the strongest argument here. Now, your point about A through C, I've got to think about a little bit more. That's a good point, and we'll have some discussion with counsel about that. Question in there somewhere, but and I, if again, you want to respond, that's fine. Yeah, if the, not, the, that's also the referees. Fine. The, I mean, the court can the court can find that the referee erred on 88E and still, by ample evidence, conclude that he lacked remorse. The, the best evidence of his lack of remorse is the fact that he testified that he was violating the Supreme Court's reinstatement order. He knew it, and he didn't take the time to educate himself. He didn't take the time to hire a bookkeeper. There were things that he couldn't do. He chose not to do that. And, um, you know, part of the interplay here, and an important fact that I didn't get a chance to mention at the beginning, is that there was ev there's evidence in the record, and the referee found, that the willfulness of respondents' bookkeeping uh, arose prior to uh, his daughter's illness and continued during the period of her, of her uh, recovery, when she was in remission. So the, the referee's findings here are all tied into the referee's conclusion that deterrence is needed, that respondent may reoffend. Counsel, when it comes to paragraph 88, here's what I thought you were going to say. A, a, B, C, D, and E are examples found by the referee, but the referee made a general finding that there had been a generic apology, and it looks like the referee just didn't find that credible, find the apology to be credible. 
Are we entitled to give, give that weight to that finding? Yes, it's a credibility determination, and the court generally defers to the trier of fact as being in the best position to make that. There's also factual testimony that backs up that credibility determination. When Mr. Lieber was asked during trial whether a disbarred attorney who's reinstated is held to a higher standard of ethical recommitment to the practice of law upon reinstatement, Mr. Lieber said, well, I think all lawyers are held to an ethical standard. So respondent doesn't seem to acknowledge that as a disbarred reinstated attorney, he has a higher, he has the highest ethical obligation. In fact, the referee said that he believed that based on the demeanor of the respondent that would be in the hearing, that, that he was sorry, not that he violated the rules, but sorry that he got caught. So that's a, that's a demeanor finding. Correct, and, and that interplays with the willfulness of the record keeping and the referee's specific findings in 88 that respondent chose, knew that he was doing his bookkeeping wrong, and he chose not to correct it. And the court has acknowledged that failure to correct and to con continue uh, engaging in the same misconduct is indicative of a lack of remorse. Yeah, you know, uh, and that, that I point, I think, is worth pursuing. But I have to say, um, and I'm not sure if this is a question or an observation, but uh, I am very troubled by uh, a finding that, that he makes here that his demeanor um, was sufficient to uh, you know, to, to determine that there was a lack of remorse here. I mean, I, that's not anchored to anything. And I, I, I think that's, you know, we do say that credibility determinations are owed some deference, but um, I, think there's, I think there's a problem here. And, and can I just, building maybe on what Justice Anderson said, also the fact that someone tr defends themselves is evidence of lack of remorse, which is something I have, appears frequently in these cases is something that's very troubling to me as well. And that obviously is not a question either, but uh, it just comes up over and over again. I think at least D and E are examples of that in this case. But I did have a question um, on, so paragraph 87 is about prior discipline. Uh, and then paragraph 89 is about experience. But the only experience, the only factor related to experience they point to is the fact that he was previously disciplined. And I know that it wasn't raised by the, by the party, but it seems like there's some double counting going on uh, there. I think experience is a relevant aggravating factor here because respondent has been a solo practitioner and run a law firm on his own for close to 20 years, and he still doesn't know how to do his books and records. So there is interplay between that and the willfulness of the misconduct. But that's not what the referee found. Well, he did find that he had been a, had been a lawyer for 20-some years. But again, I think the point he's making is that this is someone who still doesn't know how to do the books and records. And I want to come back to the issue of remorse. I really want the court to take some time to read the transcript, especially read the transcript between uh, pages 122 up through 130, because I engaged with a number of questions with respondent when I asked him about um, whether he was aware that there were errors in his bookkeeping, it's, he was not forthright in that testimony. And I think you really need to read the transcript in this to understand the, the referee's credibility determinations. This is someone who was saying that, well, I was, make sh I was doing my books and records. I was doing everything that I needed to do. I, I was looking at it. I was making sure everything looked appropriate. And it was only when I got into in-depth questions with him that he began to acknowledge that, well, yes, I, I admit that they weren't, they weren't reconciling. 
And this, that's what, that's what the referee is looking at. These were not really forthcoming. He was not absolutely forthcoming. This is not someone who testified and said, when I was reinstated, you're right. I, t- I testified that I understood my books and records and I wasn't doing it correctly. This is someone who was adamant in during his testimony saying that he did meet his, the, uh, his ethical commitment with regards to his trust account. So I think if you just read, this is one where you really have to read the whole transcript to understand that. This is a difficult case. There is not um, precedent and you have competing, aggravating, mitigating circumstances. This, the court definitely has a lot to weigh here. But again, I think in some part, the court has to think about what kind of message they're going to send to the public in terms of the accountability of a lawyer who's disbarred and willfully violates a, a Supreme Court's reinstatement order and recommits. And while um, it's difficult to find case precedent, even in other jurisdictions, other states have permanent permanent disbarment where a lawyer doesn't get to come back. And many of the disbarment cases the director looked at uh, weren't reflective of the misconduct here because it involved intentional misappropriation or serious misconduct. But if you look at the cases where the court has addressed a, a second round of misconduct by a disbarred attorney, it does reflect a universal principle that uh, a prior disbarment is a substantial aggravating factor that mandates a, uh, a multi-year suspension. Thank you, counsel. You have seven minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Cooperstein. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Eric Cooperstein and I represent the respondent in this matter, Daniel Lieber. The referee made multiple errors in this case regarding his findings and lack of findings on the mitigating factors that are present in this matter and which substantially affect what the discipline should be for respondent's misconduct in this case. We are um, challenging, I believe the referee erred in findings 88 D and E, finding 97, finding 98, and finding 99. Um, the question was raised by Justice Thiessen about uh, to what extent, if any, the referee had given weight to the mitigating factors. Uh, Justice Thiessen, I don't think the referee gave any weight at all. There were some factors the referee, the referee just didn't discuss. As to extreme stress, I don't think the referee uh, gave any weight at all to that factor. I don't think he considered it or the court's cases in this matter because the referee wrote in finding 97, the ethical rules do not provide exceptions to those rules for attorneys who have these family issues, referring to the illness of the respondent's daughter and of his father-in-law. There is an expectation that attorneys who have these problems will either seek help or modify their practice to continue to meet ethical expectations. There could be no more wrong statement of this court's prior cases regarding extreme stress than what the referee wrote in finding 97. Uh, the referee seems to have confused uh, factors that mitigate the level of discipline that is appropriate in the case with whether or not the rules were violated or misconduct was committed. Uh, respondent didn't contest whether he committed misconduct. Um, his misconduct is 
at, at best, troubling. It is difficult to understand how he could not foresee some of these problems. Um, but it is clear that at the time the misconduct was going on, the misconduct that uh, the director charged, beginning with his opening of a new trust account in December of 2015, he was in the midst of um, a tragic and continuing uh, emotional burden related primarily to the uh, long-term illness of his daughter, um, but also aggravated by his uh, father-in-law's illness as well, um, that um, is even in comparison to the other cases this, this court, the other decisions this court has issued on extreme stress, um, uh, pale in comparison to what respondent was going through. We don't, we don't analyze mitigating factors to excuse the misconduct. Uh, we analyze mitigating factors to determine whether or not uh, there's an appropriate level of discipline to protect the public, guard the administration of justice, and the legal profession. So what we, what we have in this case is um, a balancing that the court needs to do between the fact that on the one hand, um, respondent was previously disbarred and readmitted. That's a, that's a significant aggravating factor. And on the other hand, he has um, uh, this extreme stress plus other mitigating factors that the referee did not consider. That's, uh, that, that is what we believe is the balancing test that the court has to go through to, to determine what an appropriate level of discipline is in this case. Morse issue. Uh, opposing counsel points to uh, findings 88 A through C and says, well, maybe the respondent or the uh, director does not admit that there um, are problems with the remaining remorse findings, but points to A through C and says that's enough. How do you respond to that? Your Honor, um, 88 A through C are not actually remorse findings. They're findings about the facts of the misconduct. They're findings about credibility. But they're not actually findings um, pertaining to respondents' uh, expression of remorse. And there was not a great expression of remorse. Um, I, I, we would ask that the court consider that in the context of testifying for perhaps 10 or 15 minutes about your daughter's cancer and all the treatments you have to go through in your daughter's cancer and reliving that on the stand, um, by comparison, the misconduct, although serious, um, where no clients were hard, it may be dif difficult for a person to express uh, anguish um, for, for, for those um, uh, failures of administration and foresight and judgment um, as compared to having to um, try to hold yourself together to testify about your daughter's illness. But, um, Your Honor, 88A um, talks about um, respondents' awareness of his of his obligations for the trust account. 88B talks about um, things he should have or could have done prior to the disciplinary action, disciplinary action to maintain his trust account. Paragraph 88C um, talks about um, his credibility and whether or not he actually was maintaining any records or not. Those are not findings as to remorse. We, we didn't challenge them because they're credibility findings that we would be hard-pressed to challenge. The referee is entitled to make his determinations, but they're findings about the facts, not about the, 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 the level of sincerity of his remorse. And so this what- This kind what, of raises a question. When do you judge remorse? Like, at what point in, in this process do you look and say, 
we're going to look and see if he's remorseful at this point. I mean, it's, some of what you're talking about is this is stuff done before he was, right. before the director got involved, I guess. So do you, you, do you address remorse at the time of the hearing, or do you address a remorse, the feelings of remorse, well, I mean, based as, on activities prior to that? As, as Justice Lillicock said, I mean, the, the, the referee can make findings as to the respondent's demeanor during the, the extent of the trial. Um, he was asked about his remorse, but um, one can't express remorse for things you did before you realized you had committed misconduct. Um, and, and, there, and there is a certain inconsistency in what the referee is doing here. The referee is saying, on one hand, respondent was oblivious um, to what was going on, but, then, but at the same time attributes to him all the things he should have done um, because he should have known what was, what was, what was going on um, and how his trust account was deficient. So I, I don't know how, you, when we assess remorse, we, we assess remorse at least as of the time that you discover that um, you've committed some misconduct, assuming you haven't, you haven't known it beforehand. Counsel, can I just get to the heart of what's troubling, what's really hanging me up or bothering me here about this case is, it's the, it's the disciplinary history. It's the fact that your client was disbarred, then he was reinstated, and there were these conditions. One of them was, mind your P's and Q's with your trust account. And for at least a six-month period before he's discharged from probation, your client's not doing that. There's sort of a, a, a cavalierness about that that gives me great concern. Um, help me work through that. Chief, um, I, I, we don't believe that the record shows any cavalierness. Um, when you refer to the six months before um, he was before the probation ended. I believe that was part of your question. Yes, yes. I'm, 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 I think the so misconduct starts in December of 2015 and he's reinstated, I mean the probation ends, excuse me, in, in July of 2016. Correct, and so um, December of 2015 is when he opens his new trust account. And respondent testified that the referee was dismissive of it, but re respondent testified that he, that he saw as the subordinate lawyer in the firm that was owned by someone else, he saw that there were problems with the trust account. And um, he testified that despite the fact that his daughter had, had a relapse of her cancer that prior summer and was still suffering from effects of that cancer, um, he decided that he had to fix the trust account somehow, and his, his method of doing it was to open a new trust account, and that was December of 2015, and it was in the, and so that, he, he testified, again, the referee was very dismissive of it, but he testified that that was his attempt to take control of the trust account. He wasn't able to be in full control, yes, he was participating in it, he, there were all kinds of things that, that should have been done better, there's, there's, there's no question, um, but he was trying to take control of the trust account, um, and that's the, the and that's when, and in the process of doing that, he he started making errors, and he was not maintaining the records, and could not assure himself um, that he was keeping it properly. Um, I mean, we're not contesting the, the, the misconduct, so I don't want to dig too deep into the facts and the timeline. But the, the but um, the director is somewhat in, inaccurate in saying that you know there was 18 months of. Um, Respondent, you know, knowing that there were problems in the director's audit, um, we provided trust account records to the director, whatever he had, his checkbook register. There were records. It's not as though there are some cases where the lawyer is simply keeping no records at all, where there's no checkbook register, there's no client names attached to transactions. Um, nearly, I mean, we're talking about uh, perhaps 
thousands of transactions here. You know, there were some that did not have attributions, but most of them had attributions. They were entered in QuickBooks. There was a check register that could be followed. That's not to say it was all being done properly, but there were records. We turned those records over in September of 2017. It was in April of 2018 that the director contacted us and said, we think there's a huge shortage here. And there's an email on the record where we said, we're depositing that money today to, to correct the shortage. Now the shortage turned out to be nowhere near as large um, as what the director thought it was, in part because there were errors that had to be traced that ended up favoring respondent. Um, and so the time from when respondent knew that the book, you know, so we, we knew there was a problem in April of 18 and we respondent hired the bookkeeper, I believe, in June of 18 and it was a huge uh, undertaking and the records had to be fixed. The QuickBook records had to be transferred into a new place and that happened over the summer and the director ended uh, her work on the trust account in November of 2018. So it's, it, it, you know, the director talks chief about willfulness. We don't know where that standard comes from. This seems to be yeah, a Yeah, and new... I'm not, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm not really even going there. I mean, cavalier was probably the wrong word to use, but it just seems to me that when you've been disbarred and the court sort of goes out on the limb and reinstates you and has these conditions, and, and during the probationary period after his reinstatement, some of these problems start. And, yes. and how can we protect the public? How can we be sure we're protecting the public if we don't impose a lengthy suspension here? Well, Your Honor, I, I think the premise of this court's cases on extreme stress is that um, there, are, there are unusual and extraordinary events that happen in a lawyer's life. And, and that are completely unpredictable. That's not to say that, I, I, I won't stand here and say that it's pure, that, that the only trust account problem is there. I mean, there is evidence that there were errors beforehand, that there were practices that were continued and were not fixed. But in that period, from when respondent opens the new trust account, that is right smack in the middle of when he and his family are trying to deal with his daughter's extended illness. And that, that extends from December 15th through the probation, you know, through the end of the probation into, into 16. And, uh, you know, the, an argument could be made that, well, what about after that? What about in 17? Or you could go back. Well, it, the, the, a lawyer would have the same problem that the director or the bookkeeper has in going back through a huge trust account like that and fixing it. Is that, yes, you've got a gargantuan task on your hand that you probably need to set aside a week or so. Um, and that's not the first thing you get to when you have all these other client cases. Counsel, um, I'd like to discuss the discipline that you're recommending in the case, your client is recommending which is a stayed suspension, and is it of 90 days? Yes. So if it's a stayed suspension of 90 days, then there'd be no reinstatement proceeding? That's correct. Um, I did some poking around, and I haven't seen any stayed suspensions issued by this court, with the exception of reciprocal discipline cases, where some other state does a stayed suspension. I haven't seen that kind of discipline in the last 10 years. Um, what can you we did it yeah. before but why why would a stayed suspension be appropriate in this case well your honor so in in, in requesting a stayed suspension we're looking at the level of harm to the public of which there is there is of course the um, the harm that goes along with simply not following trust account rules that are designed to protect the public 
And then there is the question of whether anyone was actually harmed. And in this case, no one was actually harmed by the trust account problems. Um, and so we're, we're, we're looking at that and we're looking at, we're looking at the cases where, that are similar, where there's similarly money missing from a trust account, sometimes for much longer periods of time and larger amounts of money, larger amounts of money um, that result in a public rep reprimand. And we're looking at the balancing between the, the aggravating factor of the, dis of the disbarment um, and the extreme stress and trying to craft uh, a, a, a discipline that is appropriate to the circumstance so that if it's true that respondent just can't, can, is com incapable of doing this, um, the director can pull the trigger and he can be suspended. Um, and it, it, I mean, there is, a, there is a certain sense of irony that if the if respondent is suspended um, for an extended period of time, longer than 90 days, he has to sell his practice, he can't own his practice, and every client has to be notified, all the hundreds of clients have to be notified that they need a new lawyer, um, which would cause delay in their cases. I mean, I, well, we encounter that every time we suspend a lawyer. There's, there's nothing and, unique and the to that. And the court has said that a and it, the court has said in past cases that a suspension is particularly harsh on a solo practitioner. The court has taken that into account in crafting what the appropriate discipline is in the past. Um, so what, what we're looking for is, is discipline that will protect the public. Uh, it's clear to us the court is not going to give a respondent the same discipline as a lawyer with no disciplinary history. Um, but on the other hand, we and don't you, expect... By, by the way, I'd be interested in your answer to the question that I asked um, the director's office, which is, in the absence of the previous, the, the disciplinary history, in the absence of the disbarment, what do you think would be the appropriate discipline in this case? Oh, unquestionably, it would be a public reprimand. The director has benchmarks for which cases they, which books and records cases they pursue so as the public previous discipline. previous disbarment only moves this on the needle from a public reprimand to a stayed suspension of under 90 days where you wouldn't need to seek reinstatement. Is that, is that really um, a position that this court should adopt? If there were no mitigating factors, Your Honor, then likely the outcome would be a lengthy suspension because of the disbarment. Mm -hmm. The court has never seen this type of extraordinary stress in a discipline case before. That is what makes all the difference. If you look at the Rooney case and the Fairbairn case, both cases of intentional mis misappropriation, in those cases the mitigating factors move the needle from presumptive disbarment to an 18-month suspension. And even if we assume a lawyer can come back from disbarment, you're talking about, you know, rule of thumb, likely at least seven years before you can apply as opposed to coming back after 18 months. So this court has moved the needle by a tremendous amount in its past cases, in intentional misappropriation. I mean, in the Rooney case, where there was a methodical, um, thought out and intentional, multiple misappropriations of funds over an extended period of time, misappropriating $27,000, um, uh, I agree with you. The circumstances Mr. Lieber were facing were quite extraordinary. I mean, the only thing missing from this story is a plague of locusts. And that, every, everything else is there. All, all the, the hardships and stresses and bad things happening. Well, th that's right, Your Honor. I mean, what the referee says about we expect lawyers to seek help, you know, one thing we know about lawyer wellness and this crisis we have in lawyer wellness is that lawyers don't seek help. And so the question is, um, are we, 
there's some question, are we disciplining, a, are we setting the discipline based on a lawyer failing to seek help? Are we, are we going to follow the referee's suggestion that, well, it's on you. Too bad, so sad. You have to figure, you know, you have to, you have to figure this out. And when you, and if you get it wrong, um, the sanctions are severe. Um, I, you know, the, the, the director talked quite a bit about deterrence. I don't think there's a lawyer that exists anywhere who thinks, oh, well, I'll do this. Um, a, that I'll do this, but because I'm betting, well, the discipline won't be so bad. I've never seen, I've never seen a lawyer, um, and I don't know that there's ever been a case in this court where there was a lawyer who had done the calculus before committing the misconduct of how bad it was likely to be. Even in the small cases, a, a, a lawyer doesn't fail to communicate with, with a client because the lawyer doesn't know there's a rule or, or they're betting on what, on what the outcome is going to be. So deterrence is a, is a poor rationale um, for... Um, severe discipline, and, um, and, and in the same vein, I don't think that um, any lawyer or the public who looked at this and said, well, yeah, this is, this, is, this is pretty awful, this lawyer was disbarred, and then he engaged in some of the same conduct, um, but you can see what was happening in his life. His daughter was dying, and um, the, court, the court appears to have given him an opportunity to, to, rec to, 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 to go forward um, absent those conditions being in place. And so, is the reason for severe discipline that we worry that 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 that, that more tragedies are going to befall the same lawyer? Is, is that is that is, is that what we're we're really trying to trying trying to prevent? Is that how we're we're protecting the public? Or is there an understanding that yes, in a very small percentage of lawyers? I mean, when you think about the number of lawyers in Minnesota and the number of lawyers who end up before this court, we're talking about um, the, the small percentage of cases where. Um, Terrible things happen, and the court has shown flexibility in those cases in the past, and we don't see why respondents' case, as bad as it is, it's terrible. I mean, it's, it's really hard to understand how a lawyer could, could lack this much foresight. But at the end of the day, um, we're talking about really bad bookkeeping where no client was harmed. No client was even at risk of harm. And we tried to make that point to the referee. The referee discarded it. We believe that the court... Um, should consider as part of a lack of a selfish motive the fact that respondent had sufficient funds to cover this, you know, any shortage in the trust account for all but six days of the entire audit period. Um, so it's not as though this is someone who's paying, playing fast and loose at the margins, you know, and um, jeopardizing client funds or has some other need for the money or is, you know, buying fancy cars or gambling or, or some such thing, we have a, a very aggravated failure to maintain books and records in a very, a very busy law practice, which makes the problems harder to track down. At the, at the end of the day, that, that's what we have. And, and, and sure, we, we have to say that all uh, failures to maintain books and records are serious. Um, but the fact is the director only prosecutes those cases as public, public discipline when there's money missing. If there's a smaller amount, if there's under, say, if there's, you know, if there's, if there's, if there's only, uh, you know, a, a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars of money missing from a trust account, the director usually enters into a private probation agreement with the lawyer. During, during all of these stresses, was the law pra practice profitable enough to um, afford hiring a bookkeeper? Yes. Yes, it was. And that is one of, um, I would say that's one of many failures on respondents' part, is not turning this, this, this over to someone else to handle the time. Um, but again, even absent that, there was no, there was no 
palpable harm to clients. Trust, you, you know, the trust account system is kind of this, there's a kind of sanctity to the trust account system, right? If lawyers don't follow it, there's all kinds of bad consequences that can happen from it. One, one for example, is if, if there's, you know, commingling in a trust account could lead to creditors of the lawyer thinking as though, well, the lawyer's using that account as their personal account, um, and so we're going to go after money in the trust account because the lawyer owes us money. But of course, those aren't factors that, that are present here. But there is a, there is a system involved, and so the, 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 the court's um, sternness regarding trust account record keeping is appropriate. And this is, this is why lawyers get publicly reprimanded sometimes for, for failing to maintain their records in such a way that there's a loss sometimes of funds. Sometimes we say you can't, you can't have a trust account. The court has said that um, in a few occasions where a lawyer has been suspended. Um, is being perhaps being reinstated from suspension. I don't know, Your Honor, if it's happened in a case where there's been a public reprimand or even a short suspension, but usually where it's, it's where a lawyer has had significant problems and they've been... I wonder if but, that's an appropriate um, idea here. Well, certainly some, you know, the, the court obviously is going to want some, some sense of security of this not happening again. We think that that's, um, that the state suspension... Um, would have that effect, but certainly the, the court's going to want some method of, of, of assuring that somebody else is going to be looking at this trust account. A lawyer can't be on probation forever. Um, certainly the director's office, any probation, I would think, if, uh, is going to involve a lawyer turning over records to the director's office, and they're going to analyze them. But there would be some sort of supervision. Even I think, I, I, Chief, it might have been you who suggested having a bookkeeper, require, requiring a bookkeeper. Um, it could be a requirement that, that, you know, the lawyer can't be a signatory, can't be the person responsible for the trust account, or needs two signatures. Uh, big law firms use two signatures on trust account checks. Um, there, it, it could be something of, of, of that nature. Um, The one point um, I don't think I got to mention um, here, oh, I, Justice Lillehog, you asked a question about state suspensions. Um, we cited two state suspensions in our brief, Craker and Jennings, and the director actually cites a state suspension case. The Johnson case shows up in the director's discussion of cases about discipline for trust accounts. Um, yeah, I, don't, I think they're all at least 10 years old. We just haven't really been in the business of state suspensions in the last decade, as best as I can ascertain. And that's why I was intrigued that you came up with the idea of a state suspension. Yeah, I, I, Your Honor, I, I, I mean, I, it's difficult to speak to why the court hasn't used them um, in recent years. I, I do have in my compendium of cases a list of about 20 or so state suspensions over time. I would agree that most of them are um, most of them are cases that have not occurred in the last 10 years, except, as you say, for reciprocal disciplines, um, where uh, that's, been the, that's been the discipline in another state. That is a discipline that, that other states use. Counsel, um, sorry, I, can, can we consider the lack of a selfish motive here? Is that baked into the harm, as, as the director believes? Um, the lack of a selfish motive, Chief, if I can finish this, the answer to this question. Um, the lack of selfish motive is, is slightly separate from the harm. The lack of selfish motive goes to the fact that a lawyer could be negligent or cavalier, as the, as the, as the Chief referred to earlier, um, and um, that could somehow benefit the lawyer, 
Right. You could be not maintaining your records, and there could be some benefit to you as the lawyer in not complying with those rules. Here, there's no, there's, there's no, there's no evidence at all. And um, Ms. Nelson testified, the director's paralegal testified during the hearing, there's no patterns, there's, no, there's nothing in the way the records were poorly maintained that suggests it was being done for the lawyer's advantage. And in fact, he was, as the referee put it, oblivious to the harm. So we think that selfish motive is um, a separate factor that should be considered mitigating as well. My time's expired. Thank, Thank you Thank you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Hanson, you have seven minutes for rebuttal. I have four points I'd like to make. First, I'd like to address the Chief Justice's question whether uh, restricting Mr. Lieber's access to a trust account would be uh, a appropriate monitoring term. This court has already imposed a reinstatement order with conditions of probation which were non-standard. They were stringent. That was insufficient to ensure Mr. Lieber's compliance. It's simply too much of a risk to assume that that would be sufficient a second time around. And relative to that, I want to point out some facts from the record. Mr. Lieber testified that upon his reinstatement in 2013, he remained responsible for the bookkeeping. That means he's putting the information into QuickBooks. We know from his testimony that he was never doing that correctly because he had these inexplicable same or same last name, unrelated client ledgers. He wasn't doing reconciliation. So this court can reasonably assume that those books and records were never compliant from the minute that he was reinstated to the practice of law, not just the six months reflected by the director's audit, because we were prohibited from auditing that complete period. But the evidence that he was making those same errors pre-exists that. And it's also important to note that Mr. Do Mr. Lieber's daughter was in a period of remission when, she was, when he was reinstated to the practice of law. She became ill a second time in 2015. So there's a substantial period of time where Mr. Lieber didn't care about the fact that he wasn't meeting his ethical obligations under the court's reinstatement order. I'd also like to address Justice Thiessen's concerns about remorse and mitigation. Remorse in my opinion, is the second most important aggravating factor here, the lack of the remorse. And it's, it can make the difference between whether this court decides that a reinstatement hearing was required under Rule 18 or whether one isn't required. And going back to the referee's finding of fact 88A, B, and C, unlike uh, what respondent counsel has said, those are factual findings of a lack of remorse. Look at the Rebo case. At 176, the court has said a lawyer's unwillingness to correct is indicative of remorse. The respondent testified that he knew he was violating the court's reinstatement order. He knew his books and records weren't uh, adding up. And the referee correctly found his unwillingness to simply take the time to learn how to do it or to hire a bookkeeper was evidence of an unwillingness to correct. That's a lack of remorse. Uh, third, I want to talk about... Um, some of Justice Lillehog's concerns with the, um, with, uh, the prior discipline and whether a state suspension would be a sufficient, uh, 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 up, and I hate to use the word upward departure because that's criminal, but whether a state suspension would reflect enough of a substantial discipline given the aggravating history of his prior discipline. The court can look at the Teague cases Teague 1 and Teague 2 involve a lawyer who failed Is to that keep. Randy Teague? Yeah. Okay. Tag, <laughs> tag Teague. Um, and those are the first two cases involve a lawyer's failure to keep trust account books and records. 
and it's willful because the, client, the lawyer's told the first time, you're not doing subsidiary ledgers. The second time the lawyer's told, you're still not doing subsidiary ledgers, so it's more substantial discipline. And the third and most recent tag case, again, you still have the failure to keep the books and records, the negligent misappropriation, and the court in that case opposed a multi-year suspension. Now, there was one misappropriation of a client filing fee, but the court really, that was quite a, a substantial uh, growth in terms of the discipline imposed. So the respondent's uh, argument that you would go from being disbarred to simply a state suspension that wouldn't even require a lawyer with this willful misconduct and this lack of remorse to undergo a reinstatement hearing, there's simply no uh, case law precedent for that whatsoever, and it would be inappropriate and send the wrong message can, to can the I public. Can I just clarify, is lack of remorse an aggravating factor here? No, no, no. There's, it would be inappropriate for a lawyer who has a lack of remorse not to be required to go through a reinstatement hearing. Because and during I'm, I'm kind of going back. I, I was started thinking about the, your second point. Because I thought at that, in that discussion you said it, you started to talk about his lack of remorse is actually aggravating the circumstances. Was that, oh. Maybe that was just a misstatement. Maybe that was a misstatement. No, I meant the reinstatement hearing is required for a lawyer who evidences a lack of remorse because it's the opportunity for the director to examine him on his understanding. And I thought it was your position that absence of remorse is an aggravating Oh, yes. Factor. Sorry. Yes, it is. Sorry. I got you. I mean, you said it was the me. second most important. Yes, it is. Factor. I'm sorry. I got confused by Justice Thiessen's question. But, so, but I thought they're arguing that lack of remorse is a mitigating factor here. No, no. They're saying he does have remorse. And that's a mitigating factor. I'm saying his lack of remorse is an aggravating factor. Well, that, that's not what quite right. Counsel has, in the brief, argues that it should be neither an aggravating nor a mitigating factor. And I'm saying it is clearly an aggravating right. factor based on findings 88A through C, which evidence a failure to correct knowing or willful trust account Can conduct. Can you address the Fairbairn Rooney point that opposing counsel made? I mean, it does seem to me that that if you compare the level of stress, you know, what was happening in the lawyer's life. And in Fairbairn, we mitigate what was a dis disbarment all the way down to an 18-month suspension. Doesn't that kind of put some breadcrumbs here for us as to what we should do in this case? I'm, I, I mean, in many ways, it's, I don't feel it's my position to say one lawyer's uh, family tragedy is more substantial than another, but in the Fairbairn case, I wouldn't characterize the, the mitigation that was present there in terms of her family's stress as any less substantial than what Mr. Lieber is facing here. Uh, Fairbairn involved Ms. Fairbairn's sister having committed suicide and uh, mental health re uh, issues related to the fallout of that suicide for Ms. Fairbairn and also uh, other families stressed with the daughter's uh, pregnancy and, and other things. Right, but the point is it mitigates all the way from intention, from disbarment to an 18-month suspension. Right, Ms. Fairbairn didn't have any prior disciplinary history, and here we have this unprecedented singular fact that Mr. Lieber was previously disbarred for the same conduct, which also occurred in close proximity to his reinstatement and also was recurrent. So the court has looked at that and said, well, that's not an, another separate aggravating factor. It aggravates the weight that the court or accords to the prior disciplinary history. At a minimum, the respondent has provided no case law basis by which the court shouldn't grant deference to the referee's recommendation for an 18-month suspension. It's our position that that would be the minimum the court should impose and that a three-year suspension more accurately reflects what other jurisdictions have done. And we requ request that the court impose the three-year suspension. Thank you.
you, Counsel. Thanks to both Counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.